Welcome to the Global Development Institute podcast. Based at the University of Manchester, we're Europe's largest research and teaching institute addressing poverty and inequality. Each episode will bring you the latest thinking, insights and debate in development studies. This report uh, is part of the Perspectives on Global Development series, uh, which has been running for about a decade since, since 2010. Uh, and this one is called Perspectives on Global Development from Protest to Progress, which uh, hopefully gives you some kind of sense of, of what we were trying to achieve with, with the report. Uh, and there it is on your side. And there's also a, uh, uh, what is just a wonderful photograph of, uh, of the unrest in Chile uh, in 2019. And it's something we will come back to uh, later in this lecture. So the, the purpose of the report is to examine the causes and consequences of discontent and what can be done to alleviate it. Now, uh, as Antonio says, it's a, it's a big report, uh, and I'm going to focus more on the diagnosis than the response. Uh, I think this is where I'm on. Well, I think part of the, 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 the message about the, the response is that it, it has to be, there is no particular, uh, there's no clear answer to what has to be done. Responses have to evolve. However, on the diagnosis, I think I'm on slightly surer footing by providing you with uh, evidence and also uh, to to propose a framework to you. Uh, the report was, was prompted uh, by a surge in political instability since the global financial crisis, probably starting with the Arab Spring, uh, which certainly attracted the development center's uh, attention because Tunisia was a country which had such strong or stable, at least, macroeconomic fundamentals, but suddenly there was this explosion of, uh, of unrest which spread very quickly across the region and arguably uh, was uh, one of the, the motivating factors behind the Occupy Wall Street uh, protests. And then what has really continued to be, and I'll show you the, in a second what it looks like, a sort of a, a rise in political instability. And this actually continued uh, in 2020 and in 2021, where we assumed while putting the report together that uh, this surge that we saw in 2019, there were protests simultaneously across almost every Latin American country, for example. We assumed that this would, uh, in 2020, due to the, um, the COVID pandemic, but actually what, has ha what happened is that the number of demonstrations still rose in that year, despite the fact that for three or four months or longer, in some cases, people were largely confined to their homes. Uh, and of course, it has continued in 2021 with some dramatic events at the start of the year in the United States and, and really continuing uh, across the year. But what we aren't necessarily just looking at, at this kind of political instability, or rather, we wanted to look beyond it uh, to, uh, to a phenomenon that was perhaps uh, both more easier to generalize, but perhaps harder to grasp. And so we hit on the idea of discontent, uh, which we defined as a sort of collective frustration emerging from feelings of vulnerability, injustice, and unmet expectations. So, it's already we're, we're starting from a term that is uh, not it's not immediately obvious to people what discontent means, but it was a, a, a way in which we could sort of enter this topic uh, and address the kind of themes we wanted to. But, you know, your thoughts on this topic, on this on this choice would be most welcome. We saw evidence of this discontent in advanced and developing economies alike over the last decade, of course. Uh, some I've already mentioned the, the protests, the Arab Spring, uh, the protests in Latin America and in, in other parts of the developing world, there have been uh, sort of large scale protests over the past decade. 
uh, continuing today. But uh, at the same time, actually, when we started putting uh, rising this, the, 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 the real issue was populism in, in Western uh, countries and sort of the emergence of ethno-nationalist parties and, and really a sort of uh, perceived crisis in liberal democracy, which is obviously continuing to this day. So uh, while we are predominantly thinking about developing countries here, we are also, uh, you know, the, a lot of the evidence in the report, a lot of the thinking comes from a, a advanced economies as well. What we, what we also posit is that the causes of discontent go beyond economic and material concerns. It's, discontent is a psychological and a sociological phenomenon with strong political dimensions, both national and also international. So we sort of uh, barge into the realm of international relations, political science, uh, sociology, psychology, anthropology. And as I said, you know, we don't necessarily have legitimacy in any or all of these uh, spheres, but we wanted to, to sort of convey how complex this phenomenon is. But also, I think uh, increasingly it's appreciated uh, in academia, in organizations where we work uh, as well, that you know, multidimensional approaches and, and you know, multidisciplinary approaches are increasingly key to understanding the complex, the complex challenges uh, we we confront uh, and we uh, so um, we this actually this report or this presentation today isn't going to be so much on COVID nineteen. Uh, it's somewhat uh, retrospective, but COVID nineteen was very much uh, you know in our minds when we were writing it. And what the report tries to do is to explain how the, the how of building back better. So a lot of people. Uh, think have recognized that building back better means uh, environmentally friendly policies. It means addressing inequality. It means various different uh, you know, policies, but beneath these are extremely complex political economy challenges, as Antonio mentioned. And, and really, we thought that by understanding uh, discontent and helping policymakers perhaps to address it, this would enhance the chances of these changes actually uh, taking hold and being effective. So, as I say, this is today's presentation is going to be based around uh, sort of a series of key propositions or ideas. I don't necessarily expect you to buy them all, but I would be. Uh, I'm very interested in to, to discuss them, and I think uh, they these uh, inform the the report uh, as a whole. So, we argue that discontent has common causes and characteristics in different settings, and that it is thus possible to apply a general framework for understanding discontent, but not necessarily predicting it. Uh, that's, I think, uh, a, a work for, well, the, 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 the very complexity militates against any kind of uh, prediction of what form discontent might take, when it might occur, and, and why, what might be the spark for it. Uh, we also argue that subjective well-being and social cohesion matter much more than, uh, than we think. Uh, by we, I really mean you know, typical discussions around development and, and economic policy, perhaps more broadly. Uh, we also uh, think that discontent demands a rethink, not only about the journey, but also the destination of development. So our story starts around 1990, which is the, sort of the high water, the, the, the end of the Cold War, uh, the victory of uh, liberal democracy as the, 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 the model to export globally as a, as a means of uh, ensuring uh, global stability and peace, but also the emergence of, uh, sort of market uh, not, perhaps not market fundamentalism as we have today, but certainly belief in 
importance of the value of markets as a, as a key driver of uh, development. Uh, we also uh, argue that developing in developing countries, the sources of discontent correspond to, to traps, uh, which is our the development center, what we call is kind of structural bottlenecks to inclusive and, and sustainable growth. Uh, we also argue, and we won't, I won't really touch on this today because it's a, opens a, a whole new area, but the international dimensions of discontent are extensive and, and demand a rethink of global institutions. And, and finally, and this is a point I'll try and convey today, but I think is, is not necessarily easy in the, in the time available. But I think one of the things that's, that defines discontent in this area, in this era, and makes it such a concern is that Societies are finding it difficult uh, to address the cause of discontent because the basis for collective action is absent. And because uh, it's, it's increasingly clear we don't even agree on the, uh, the, the nature of a problem, much less how to deal with it. And I'll come back to that point later. Uh, so first of all, allow me to make the case for discontent. Uh, and this is based on the kind of Albert Hirschman uh, model of Exit and voice, uh, which are your two options if you're unhappy with the situation, either you leave or you express your voice and try and uh, create change. And, uh, and, and loyalty, which, is, uh, which captures people's uh, commitment to a particular uh, cause or a particular system, and that'll uh, influence their decision whether or not to leave or whether or not to express their voice. And this you know, works for consumers, but it also works for, for countries. So it's a, it's a very neat model. Uh, and so voice, uh, for voice, obviously, there's um, protests are the most obvious form of it, people taking to the, to the streets and exercising their democratic right. Uh, so we're important to note that we don't necessarily see protesters as anything abnormal. They're a part of a, of a legitimate tool in a functioning democracy. Uh, and so there's no uh, insinuation, there's no attempt to stigmatize protest. But nonetheless, uh, we do see uh, protests having a certain weight, a certain importance, and, and uh, being indicative of a certain level of dissatisfaction, perhaps, with other uh, democratic processes. And so what we see uh, is uh, a, a, um, quite a, a sharp rise in a number of protests globally uh, since from the global financial crisis onwards. And of course, it's a bit uh, choppy, uh, but there's a clear peak in, in 2015. Uh, and in all cases, there's been a sort of, across all regions, there's been a, 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 sort of a noticeable trend upwards. But you know, protests in and of themselves are an extremely uh, well-studied field. And there's also, Different uh, different types of protests. So um, a very obvious distinction is the distinction between violent and nonviolent protests. Uh, they are a different strategy. They're attempting to uh, perhaps uh, achieve a different result from the government, and they certainly pose the government with a, a different uh, challenge. Uh, and just to give you a sense of, of how these these trends might have changed in different regions. So here you have Africa and Asia Pacific. In Africa, you uh, see on the left-hand side this sharp rise in, in protests uh, over the last uh, 30 years or so. Uh, but what you also see is an increasing number of protests being non-violent, or a higher proportion rather, being non-violent than violent. Over this same kind of same period, there's been a shift away from political protest towards economic progress, the protest rather. So 
you see that the nature of the, the protest is changing and the, the conversation with uh, the government is changing. And, and in some cases, that's a sign of a maturing of, of democracies in Africa. Uh, in Asia Pacific, on the other hand, uh, there perhaps hasn't been uh, such a, um, a, a sharp uh, increase, but what there has been uh, is, you know, there hasn't necessarily been a switch towards uh, more peaceful forms of, of protest and the proportion of violent protests has, has increased. But as, as a footnote to that, uh, actually Africa is the one region in 2020 where violent protests increase, violent political uh, protests and also the number of fatalities uh, in these protests was also up unlike any other place in the, in the world. So that suggests perhaps a worrying uh, reversal in Africa. Now, we've had voice. The other approach is, as I say, exit. So this is when you uh, perhaps feel so disenchanted or disaffected with the political system that you simply, you, you step back, you don't vote. Uh, you decide that none of the parties offer you anything. You refuse really to exercise the basic uh, democratic responsibility of casting your ballot. And, and we see there's this kind of long-term decline in uh, elections uh, or voter turnout rather across, again, across all regions, uh, which has um, you know, accelerated over the course of the 1980s. And it, it's not, a, uh, and continued to decline in the 2000s. It's not really a great advert for the third wave of, of democracy. Um, and then we have loyalty. So loyalty, uh, suggests that you know that, that changes the, the calculus to what extent are people uh, going to protest or are they going to opt out of the political system or maybe they'll just uh, they have confidence in the government so they'll see how this right, this plays out and what is very worrying uh, in many parts of the world most parts of the world indeed apart from uh, in Asia is that there have uh, been uh, there's been a sharp decline in confidence in the government uh, in the last uh, 10 years or so, 10 years between 2006 and 2018. Now, because this is post-COVID, who knows how, you know, these figures almost certainly will have changed, but I don't think we can necessarily be sure they'll have changed for the better. And uh, there is certainly this uh, reduction in, in trust and in confidence in governments in many parts of the, the world. Uh, and then if we see, uh, look at the, from a different uh, time frame or a different uh, level rather, here's the system as a whole, confidence in democracy. Uh, and in Africa, we see confidence in democracy has stayed more or less constant. Uh, whereas in Latin America, there's been a, you know, a 10 point, uh, there was a 10 point decline in uh, confidence in democracy uh, across the last uh, 25 years or so. Uh, and as, as a result of which, barely half of the population on average across Latin America believes that uh, you're better off, uh, democracy is the best system that's out there, which is quite a, um, a dramatic decline. Okay, so uh, that's, you know, a very quick tour of our, you know, making the case for discontent, these downward uh, trajectories on a number of uh, indicators. Now, uh, I'm going to propose our, our, our framework for examining it. It's not uh, mind-blowingly complicated by any stretch, uh, but one thing that we were keen to avoid is this kind of, um, because let's be honest, this is a, a very, everyone has a theory as to why their country has gone wrong or why people are unhappy. It's a, there's a lot out there and a lot of it uh, sort of falls into the trap of uh, 
post hoc ergo propter hoc. You know, there is inequality, therefore that must be the cause of discontent. Or there is, you know, there's everyone has their pet theory, uh, and in very it's very very hard to really sort of join make that that link clear. Like why does inequality, for example, lead to discontent? And it's not to say it doesn't, but I think you know it behoves uh, us as social scientists to to try and understand these kind of relationships much better than perhaps is, is, the, is the case. And so our framework uh, is, as I say, not very complicated. It separates three different uh, factors. So you have the spark, uh, which is the immediate cause of, of visible discontent. And then you have uh, outside that the grievances, which is the sort of the immediate context. Uh, this is the fuel, if you will, for discontent related to day-to-day -day struggles and injustices, and often these are kind of materially based. And then within these, these grievances in turn have to be understood within, uh, in terms of the, sort of the structural factors that are fundamental, you know, how society is organized, imbalances in how power and resources are shared. Like these huge questions around the social contract and the relationship citizens have with themselves, the inclusiveness of the economy. These are, are huge questions, and um, but they also are, you know, they're very historical. They're, they, they're almost, they're infinite. But if you don't try and understand these, uh, these more structural factors, then any attempt to understand the, the discontent of the day or even how a, uh, a particular protest came about is always going to be somewhat limited. Uh, and so, uh, to give you, I mean, the, uh, the the sort of the the paradigm, or I'm not sure, I never know the right word for this, but the sort of the perfect example of our framework, it's almost too perfect, uh, was provided by the um, the unrest in Chile in October 2019. So, as I'm sure you know, that uh, what happened, what started uh, the protest started uh, because of a very small increase in metro fares. Uh, these metro, this increase uh, irritated a great deal. The people who used the metro who started avoiding, just uh, sort of invaded metro stations, jumped on trains, didn't pay their fares. Uh, the police treats were very heavy handed. Uh, the violence flared and it spread outside the capital of Santiago uh, nationwide. And very quickly, uh, the, the protests were about a lot more than, uh, than the price of metro fares. Uh, one of the things that people were unhappy about was the low value of pensions uh, and the, the low minimum wage, but especially pensions which are, are privately run in, in Chile and have been uh, delivering a very uh, low uh, retirement income for people for, for generations, even though the Chilean model is sort of hailed as the, was, uh, or for a while was hailed as the, the, the shining light of pension reform in the 1990s. So was the question, so here I'm asking whether the cause of the El Estallido, it was called the explosion in Chile, was it the increase in fare, uh, metro fares or was it the low value of pensions or was it the poor quality of, uh, of public services? So uh, you know, uh, education and health, uh, are, people have, uh, are very unsatisfied with the quality of, of those and also other uh, public services as well. So, High in, uh, high in cost, low in quality. Um, or the fourth option is the, the Pinochet era constitution. So it was uh, agreed in uh, 1980 while Pinochet was in charge. And then in 1990, it, it, it sort of took effect. And what it did was that, that, um, that 
constitution sort of setting, even after Pinochet left, it, 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 it made sure that his economic model, but also his sort of his government's vision for society more broadly, which was extremely sort of market-driven, neoliberal, uh, it, it made it, it kept it in place. It's very difficult uh, for a successive governments to change very much. And so, I, I mean, you can't, uh, this, um, this banner is absolutely perfect. Uh, at, the, at the protest. It's, it's not about 30 pesos, which was the increase in metro fares. It's about 30 years, you know, this long-held injustice that was uh, you know, enshrined, codified by the Pinochet-era constitution. And so the answer to the question is, well, all of those, all of these were factors behind uh, the, this explosion, this outburst in violence. But the only way in which uh, Chile could really move forward was was by fixing the constitution. So, uh, and a, the a referendum was held. The population voted overwhelmingly for a new constitution. And then this year, uh, voters were again asked who they would like to write this constitution. And what was fascinating is that they, by and large, voted for political outsiders. No one from the or only a very small proportion of members of this constituent assembly will come from the mainstream parties, whether they be left or center or right wing. This was a, a wholesale rejection of a political system, of an economic system, almost of a social system. So this is, uh, you know, this is what we try and we're trying to convey through this framework of the understanding these kind of structural and then the grievances and then the, the, the spark and how the fix often bears absolutely no relation to the spark itself. And by, for the record, uh, the president did try and you know, uh, said, okay, we won't raise the cost of the metro and we'll improve pensions. But you know, that wasn't, wasn't nearly enough. Okay, so these grievances, that's, uh, I'll move quickly through these um, because it's, they're, they're fairly obvious. Uh, you know. But a point I think to start from is that to understand the facts of the 